It's at this time, too, that our kids can be dismissed out the back to go to their Sunday school classes. But I think the older kids are staying with us today, so be aware of that. Just a couple things by uh, way of announcement. I want to bring your attention to um, next Sunday. Um, we're going to celebrate the Super Bowl by having a joint service with Uptown. Uh, reality is that if you look at the attendance charts on our evening service on Super Bowl Sunday, for some reason, I don't understand it, but for some reason, very few people show up to Uptown. In fact, there actually usually is a pretty large group of Uptowners who usually come to our 5 o'clock service who show up here. I don't understand why. It's the same Sunday every single year, but they show up here in the morning, so we just told all of them to do that. So, um, so next Sunday... Uh, our uptown family that normally meets in Hillcrest at 5 o'clock is going to join us here for a joint service. And so, uh, so that's exciting. Make sure if you see a bunch of folks you don't know, you can welcome them. We'll have some sort of an uptown-downtown contest that Michael will tell you about next week. So, um, okay, second, we're going to be talking today, um, and we've been in a series on um, really that focus on our small groups. And uh, if you want to be a part of our small groups, there's a list of the groups that currently meet in the bulletin on page 1. And so we'd really encourage you to be a part, um, really, our, even at a church our size, um, the church becomes personal in our small groups, okay? And so, um, so there's the, the list of groups that you can be a part of that meet during the week for prayer, for support, for uh, looking into God's Word together. Um, we'd really like you all to be a part of those. And then the last thing is that in your bulletin, there's also a connection card, this little card here. If you're new with us, Special welcome to you. Thanks for being here with us. Take a moment and just fill this out. Um, we'd love to follow up with you. If there's anything that we can do, um, uh, anything we can do for you, we'd love to be able to do that. Um, you can fill this out and you can drop it in one of the offering boxes. There's one here on the stage. There's also one back on the information table. Um, those offering boxes are also there for those of you who call our church home. Um, if you'd like to give to support the work of the church, you can do that as well. So let's go to God and let's ask him to bring his blessings on our church and our city, and then especially to open our hearts as we look into his word together. Pray with me. Father, we come to you now and we are so grateful. We are grateful that as we gather for worship, we have an opportunity to be reminded of your glory. We're reminded of who you are. We're reminded of that our proper response is to bow before you. Uh, is to submit to your loving and wonderful authority, uh, to follow you, to rehearse and declare your great deeds. Father, our church family here uh, has countless testimonies of times where we have been in desert places, we have been alone, we have been struggling, and we've cried out to you and you've heard us and you've rescued us. And we thank you. What a privilege it is to be able to worship you. And as we think about who you are and what you've done, as you become bigger and bigger in our lives, the problems that we face, the fears that we face, they get smaller and smaller. So thank you that as we worship you, um, you minister to us. God, we pray that uh, your glory what makes you special would be known by every person in San Diego. We pray that 
through knowing you, real healing and renewal would happen in our city. Spiritual renewal, social renewal, cultural renewal, as more and more of our city can be able to live life the way you intended. God, we also sign up. We, we declare that we want to be people that can bring your renewal about. We need it to come true for us personally so that we can share that renewal with others. And so now as we come to your word, open our hearts, open our minds, help us to follow you. Help us to see you so clearly, to know you so well that we can understand what our lives would look like if we lived in the reality of your love. Help us to do that. And thank you that your love is so clearly displayed through our Savior Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So as we've been talking about the last few weeks, um, if you have your Bibles, you can open them into to Romans 15. We're going to spend a little time talking before we look at the scripture. It's printed in the bulletin on page 6. There's a place to take notes on page 7. But we've been talking about what it means for us to be together. Um, we're launching um, a revised and a renewed um, vision for our small groups in mid-February. And we're doing this because God wants us to experience a, a robust and a life-transforming hope. Like That's what he wants. He wants us to experience his hope. And his hope is profound, it's powerful, and it affects everything. And the reality is that in order for us to experience his hope to the fullest, we need to do it together. We can't experience the fullness of God's blessings by ourselves. It is not good for you to be alone. And so we've been talking about what does it mean for us to live together? What does it mean for us? And we're focusing on coming together in our small groups in our small groups, and as we make a shift, as we make this shift with the way our groups are to what they're going to be, this is going to be a wonderful transition. Um, we're going to go deeper. We're going to be much more intentional about helping each other grow as disciples of Jesus. But I've got to say that this transition is also, it, it may be hard. It may be hard for some of us because as we come together, general universal axiom Relationships are messy. Relationships are messy. As we more intentionally disciple each other, there's going to be challenges. And uh, here's a book that sums this up kind of nicely. Um, it's by Tim Lane and Paul Tripp. It's called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. It's a great book because it's honest about the reality that relationships make messes, but relationships are, is a mess worth making. I've heard discipleship described like this. Discipleship is people getting close enough to care. People's lives coming together close enough so that real care happens. The challenge again, though, is that the closer people get, the messier it can become. And, and the good news is that God wants us to be close. And God also helps us. He helps us to know what to do when things get messy. Okay? And that's what we're going to see today. And, and before we look at our passage, I need to tell you about what was going on in the early church. 
Okay, we're going to look at the book of Romans, which the Apostle Paul wrote to this church that was in Rome. And in this church, in fact, in a lot of the early churches, one of the major issues that caused broken relationships, that made huge messes in the church, was whether or not it was right to eat the meat that was sold in the grocery stores. Okay? Might sound kind of silly, but, uh, but what if I told you, what if I told you that every single piece of meat that was sold at Ralph's, before it showed up in the store, was actually consecrated to the devil in a satanic church worship service? What if I told you that? That's, well, see, it's interesting, right? There's lots of different ways that people could respond. That's exactly what was going on in the first century. If you wanted to buy meat, you had to go to the marketplace. Every ounce of meat that was sold in the marketplace had been offered to either Satan or a demon in a satanic worship service in a pagan temple. And so... In the first century, you had people saying, man, that's awful. That's terrible. That meat, that's dirty. It's tainted. Christians shouldn't eat it. They shouldn't even touch it. Right? There were people who were saying, I don't want to support that. I'm never shopping Ralph's again. I'm going to Albertsons. Right? I'm going to Albertsons. Now, the problem is that Albertsons sold the exact same meat. And so you had some people that were saying, you know what? Okay, that's it for me. I'm vegetarian. I am vegetarian. In fact, everybody else, if you call yourself a Christian, you should be a vegetarian. Then you had other people who were saying, oh, come on. Like, seriously? It's just meat. I'm not worshiping the devil. Come on. Like, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it cooks up nice. There's nothing in this meat that's satanic. Just because they did this with the animal, that doesn't mean anything. You had this conflict that was going on. And then, so if you add to that, what if? What if before you became a Christian in the first century, you had participated in those satanic church services? Right? What if this wasn't just a theoretical question, but what if every time you touched meat, you remembered sitting in those services? You remember even participating in some of those services. And so you couldn't dissociate yourself. The act of eating meat, you knew that that was part of you actually worshiping the devil. Man, this is what was going on in the first century. Like, this was a very real issue. And so as you kind of sort through the ways that we might respond if that were the case about our local grocery stores. Um, you can see that in some ways, like the problems that exist are theological. Okay, like what does God think about this meat anyways? Okay, but then beyond theological problems, there were also cultural problems. Because some people grew up doing this and thought, hey, it's no big deal. Other people grew up doing this and thought, I'm never doing this again. Right, but other people th- you know, grew up and thought, like, what's the big, I mean, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, this wasn't my, I didn't grow up with this sort of marketplace. And so there were cultural problems underneath this. And then there were also personal problems. 
because different people in each of these categories, they thought, like their conscience made them feel different ways. So, like, there were some people that might have even said, you know what, like, I'm not doing this for me, but I'm not going to tell you not to do it. Okay, because if I do it, I can't dissociate myself from what goes on there. If you can, then cool. That's good for you. And the other people were like, no, I can't do it, and you can't either. Okay, and so you had these theological, these cultural, and these personal problems. And the reason I give you all this background is because these are the kinds of problems that we will have as we get closer together. You know, for those of you who have close spiritual friendships with people, who have been involved in discipleship relationships, these are the kinds of things that come up. And when we have conflict, when there are disagreements, what is in so many of our hearts is to just withdraw from the conflict. We just want to dissociate. You know what? I'm just not going to deal with this. I don't want to argue. I don't want to fight. I don't want to, you know, I just, it's too complicated for me. And we just dissociate. And by dissociating, when we separate from community, we end up robbing ourselves and others from the fullest blessing that God wants to give us. Okay? And so we have this tension. And the question is, how do we deal with the tension? Now, Paul spends an entire chapter. In chapter 14, Paul deals with a theological issue. Okay? And he actually says who's right and who's wrong in this. Okay, and I'm not gonna, we're not going to go over that. We're actually going to talk about what he says next. But Paul says that the people who are theologically correct, he says they are the strong. Okay, and the people who are wrong theologically, they are the weak. Okay, so he says strong faith and weak faith. And, um, and so Paul deals with that in chapter 14. But after he straightens out and answers the theological questions, he then goes on to teach how to be right. Okay, because how many of you have been in a conversation or have a relationship with someone who is right, but the way they're right is all wrong? You know what I'm talking about? It's not just being right or having the right answer, but it's how do you act? How do you act with the truth? Or if you're right, how do you treat other people who are wrong? And that's what Paul deals with in Romans chapter 15, in the verses that we're going to look at together. And so this instruction that Paul gives us in Romans 15, verses 1 to 14, it can actually help turn the messiness of our relationships into beauty. Okay? It can turn our brokenness into gold. Okay, so let's look at, this, at these verses. Romans 15, verses 1, 1 to 14. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. 
For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So that's God's word. It's his word to us. And where it starts, it starts, verses 1 and 2, it starts with the command. So let's just kind of walk through this. The command that Paul gives to the strong, that he gives to all of us in dealing with problems that we have, whether they're theological, cultural, personal, Paul says the strong need to hold up the weak. That's the command. It's hold up the weak. Verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his own good to build him up. So in some ways, it's kind of simple what to do. It's just hold up the weak. Some people are strong, some people are weak. The weak are struggling under the weight of the pressure. They don't know what to do. They're not acting the right way. And if you're strong, if you're right, then the best thing for you to do is actually to get down underneath and help them not struggle. It's to get down underneath. Man, don't be selfish. If you're right, man, don't be arrogant. Don't be proud. Don't look down on the weak. If you're strong, man, you need to love your neighbor. Show your strength in the way that you love. Show your strength by serving those who are weak. I mean, it's interesting. You think about how do you help someone. Right? How do you help someone when there's a disagreement? I think you accept them for who they are. Right? You bear with their failings. You don't beat them up or belittle them. You make sure that they know that you love them that underneath the disagreement that exists, underneath this area that we don't agree on, there is a foundation that is strong. There's a foundation that is real. There's a foundation that is so much more important than what we're disagreeing about. That is that we are family. We are family. I mean, think about it. We're family. I and mean, this is one of these amazing things. And Paul, Paul had never, ever been to this church, okay? Paul had never visited here. And if you jump all the way down to the bottom in verse 14, Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. And the word brothers there, it actually means brothers and sisters. It's just shorthand, the way they used to write Greek. 
He called these folks his family. Never met him before. Never met him before, but he knew that he had the most profound reality in common with them. He knew that though they'd never met, no matter how different they were, that they had something in common that was stronger and more real than anything else in all the world. They were family. They, they, they are brothers and sisters because they have God as Father. God has adopted them into his family by his extravagant grace. God has adopted them, made them, his, made them his sons and daughters, and so they are brothers and sisters. And haven't you experienced this? Like, haven't you met somebody and you find out that they're a Christian and all of a sudden there's just something there? There's real fellowship, there's community, there's a, there's a shared experience of God. There's a shared sense of Jesus and his love and his grace that just joins you together and you're thinking, man, like, I feel like I've known you my whole life. This is what happens. And so Paul says, man, if you're right, the way to be right is to be right about affirming the relationship. Accept them for who they are. Serve and honor them as part of the family of God. I mean, that's the reality. And it's funny because if in your heart this is such a big deal that we really need to resolve this difference, the best way for you to earn the right to be heard. Right? If you really want to convince them that you're right anyways, the best way to do that isn't to argue and bicker, it's to love them. It's to show them that you love them. The hope that we want, that I want all of you to have as your pastor, one of the aspects of the hope that I want all of you to have is that your front face to anybody, the, the first thing that they see and the continual thing that they see is a life of service that first and foremost you serve. That's actually what earns you the right to correct somebody else. And so, this is what Paul's saying. Paul, this is the command. This is the command. We need to bear, we need to hold up the weak. We need to bear with them. And Paul follows the command by giving us really five quick reasons why you ought to do this. Okay, so there's five reasons. So we're going to look at the reasons now. The first reason is Jesus. First, Why should you bear with the weak? Why should you hold up the weak? Why should you, even though you're right, act in ways that show love and honor to folks that even are struggling and are wrong? First, it's because of Jesus. Verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of the one who reproached you fell on me. So why should you hold up the weak? It's because when God came to earth, that's what he did. More personally, it's because when you were weak, God didn't belittle you. God didn't disregard you. God didn't make fun of you. You know what God did? God actually stooped down and got underneath your burden and carried it for you. And all of us are weighed down by the burden of our sin, the burden of our selfishness, the burden of our brokenness. And Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us. 
And he didn't just get under, us, get under with us so that we could walk with him and both hold it. Jesus actually lifted up our burden off of our shoulders and then took our burden to the cross where he offered his life so that you could be forgiven, so that that burden would be lifted off, never to return. Jesus welcomes and accepts sinners. When we're weak, Jesus holds us up. And so when relationships get messy, when relationships get broken, if you remember Jesus' love for you, that's how you'll be able to show love to others. Paul goes on. First reason is Jesus. The second reason is hope. Second reason is hope. Look at verse 4. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Okay, so verse 4 gives us an equation. Okay, I was a math major, so I saw this. I'm like, hey, it's an equation. Look at this. This is what it says. Endurance plus the Bible equals hope. If you want to have hope, if you want to live by hope, endurance plus the Bible equals hope. Endurance means patience. The, the word actually means to remain under. It means to bow down underneath and, and just to, to stay under. Right? It's a great picture what patience is. Because, yeah, in a relationship, in a small group, man, it's going to take patience. It's going to take endurance. You're going to have to... Like, you're going to have to bear the personality issues that go on in your small group. You're going to have to bear with the, just people have different backgrounds, they have different tendencies, right? Some of those things are going to be annoying, right? This is how relationships are. But if you are patient, if you are patient and bear the weight with those who are weak, that's endurance. And if you combine endurance with following the Bible, you will have hope. What does that mean to have hope? It means that you're going to meet God. Because you know what? Like, that's where God is. Jesus had endurance and followed the scriptures perfectly. And so if you do that, you will end up going where he is. That's where he is. So if you want to go and experience him, if you want to draw close to Jesus, that's where he is. He's down the path of endurance in the scriptures, endurance in the Bible. And so practically, what does that look like? That means that when it's difficult for you, when a relationship is challenging, if you can be patient and continue to show love, if you can bear up, right, and hold up the weak, if you can seek God in the scriptures, what will happen is that you will actually experience what it was like and what it is like to be Jesus. You go to Jesus and you say, Jesus, this relationship is really challenging. Like, this person really gets on my nerves. Or you know what? We disagree on this and it really kind of makes me upset. I'm not sure how to handle it. Jesus will, as you pray that prayer, Jesus will look you in the eye and he will say, I know. I know. It is hard. It is hard. But I'm with you. 
and you now understand some of what it was like for me to deal with the disciples. You now know some of what it's like for me. Can I say this gently to you? You now know what it's like for me to deal with you. And guess what? I rejoice to deal with you. You just need to know that. I'm not telling you that to make you feel guilty. I'm telling you that to make you feel my love. That gives me hope. That is a transforming hope. I feel like with this equation, this is kind of like what we saw a few weeks ago. You know, endurance in the Bible, this is hope as a verb. If you have hope as a verb, it becomes hope as a noun. You go from, I hope that this relationship is going to get better. I hope I can draw nearer to God through this situation. If you do that, endurance in the Bible, you end up, then you make a transition. You say, you know what? I now have hope that this relationship is worth it. I have hope now because I know Jesus better. So in order to have hope, you need to do hope. Right? We saw that a few weeks ago. So I found this. This is really amazing. I'm going to show you something that um, I saw. Uh, Mako Fujimura is, a, is an artist that used to go to a Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Um, he was an elder there, and now I'm not sure where he is, but he's a relatively famous artist, and I saw this on his Facebook page. This is what happens um, when you endure and follow the scriptures. This is something called kintsukuroi, kintsukurai, oi, um, it's a Japanese word, and the, and the word defined, it means to repair with gold. Okay, but it's become this art form. And the art form is, this is the art of repairing pottery with gold or silver lacquer and understanding that the piece is more beautiful for having been broken. It's the art of repairing pottery with gold or silver lacquer and understanding that the piece is more beautiful for having been broken. This is what God is offering to us. When you continue to press into community, when you continue to press into these discipleship relationships, God will take your brokenness and he will repair your brokenness with the gold of the gospel, with the gold of his grace and his love. This happens two ways as you pursue these discipleship relationships. It happens to you, okay? Because when you hold up others in relationships, God heals your brokenness with his golden grace, his golden grace. But it also happens through you. Because when you hold up others in relationships, your love, your support heals their brokenness. And Jesus' golden grace comes through you to heal them. And this is how the gospel turns our brokenness into gold. Uh, this is just maybe I should just stop right now. <laughs> we got more verses, but I, you know I don't, it's going to go downhill from here. So y'all can just tune out. 
just think about this. Um, there are some more things that Paul says that I think just continue to drive the point home. Um, so the next reason, so we have Jesus. The reasons why you should hold up the week is because of Jesus, because of hope. Third, because of harmony. Third, because of harmony. Verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. And these kinds of relationships where you're bearing with the weak, when you're loving each other, affirming each other, it brings harmony. And harmony, you've got to remember, is more than peace. Okay? Peace, it, musically, looks like two people singing the same part. Right? But that's not what harmony is. Harmony. Harmony is people singing variations of the same song that together make the song richer, fuller, and more powerful. I mean, friends, this is why I need every one of you to be doing this together. Okay, this is why we're bringing this focus on our small groups is because we need to be doing this together. Our groups need to be places of harmony, not just peace, but harmony. And that's, like, harmony is great because harmony rejoices that we're not all the same. Harmony doesn't try to get us to all be the same. Harmony says, man, we're an eclectic group of folks here. Lots of different kinds of differences. There's lots of ways that we're different. And we love the fact that we're different because every one of us brings a unique experience. Every one of us brings something different, a different way of looking at it, a different way of experiencing God, a different, I mean, and all of these differences come together and we become, I mean, just to flop metaphors, we become a symphony. We become a symphony. And just so you know, in our groups, we're going to be exploring specifically what our story is. Like, what are your gifts? What are your strengths? How are you wired? Um, that's part of what it means to grow as disciples. And we're going to be doing that this year together. Together. And what's amazing is that Paul says that when we do this, when we live in harmony with one another, this glorifies God. This gives God amazing credit and puts the best of God on display. Verse 6, he says that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason this honors God is because it shows that God is the God of all of the nations. It shows that God is the God of all people, not just one. Not just one kind of person. Okay, and so... We hold up the week because of harmony. And fourth, I mean, this is really awesome, is that um, this then provides proof. This provides proof, okay? Because when we have these kinds of relationships, our lives are actually proof that God is the God of the world, okay? Our lives actually show God's promises coming true. In verses 9 to 12, there's four different quotes from the Old Testament. Four different quotes that were given. And all these quotes look forward to the day when God is worshipped by people from all the nations around the world. Okay? There were times they said, you know what, we're just one family with Abraham. Right? It's Abraham and Sarah and their kid. Right? And then it's Isaac and their kid. It's all one family. Right? And there are these promises that come over and over and over again. They're looking forward. They're saying someday God isn't just going to be the God of this one family, but he's going to be the God of all the nations. He's going to be the God of all kinds of people. 
And so when it happens, when different people live in harmony together, let me say it more particularly, when you are willing to bear with the weaknesses of others, okay, not to dissociate, but when you press into community and you're willing to love people in the midst of your disagreements, in the midst of your theological disagreements, in the midst of your cultural disagreements, in the midst of your personal disagreements, when you do that, these promises come true. Paul's convinced that when the early church was able to love each other in the midst of this, Paul was convinced that this was the Bible coming true. You think about prophecy, predictions that are made. Paul is saying that if we live like this, if you're willing to say yes to community, yes, I'm going to live together, yes, our groups are going to be pursuing this with each other together, if you're willing to do that, you actually have the opportunity to be the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. That's awesome. That's incredible. That us living together, us straining to be with people who are different, straining in that uncomfortable place, man, when it's hard, think about this, you think, you know what? I'm doing this because of Jesus, because he did this for me. I'm doing this because I know I'm going to have greater hope. I'm doing this because this harmony thing is really beautiful. But oh my goodness gracious, like I can, I, when I do this, man, I am proof that God's promises are true. Jesus himself said, he prayed about this. He prayed about this very thing. He said, Father, make my people one. Make them one the way we are one so that the world would know that you sent me. Man. Man. Maybe that's the high point today. It didn't really go downhill. It came back up. That's just that's just incredible. That is just incredible. And this is what is offered to us. This is why we are revising and relaunching our, our, our small groups. Okay, It's because we want to provide a context for every one of you to be able to experience this. Man, that's what we want. And so the last thing Paul says, the last reason Paul gives for this, is just, it's about who you are. And this is verse 14. And I like this, because here Paul says some things that you might not agree with. You might not agree with this, but this is what Paul says is true. And what's interesting is that this is true about you. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. And what Paul says to them, he would say to anybody who believes in Jesus. Because if you're trusting in Jesus, Paul says, you are full of goodness. Are you sinful? Yeah, so am I. All of us are sinful. But Paul says here, you're full of goodness. Why? Well, it's because Jesus is in you. The Bible says that when we believe in Jesus, when we begin to follow Jesus... God pours out his Holy Spirit 
And God's Holy Spirit lives in us. And that's the life of Christ. That's who Jesus is living in us. The reason that you are full of goodness, in some ways, it's not because of you. It's because of Jesus in you. He's your source of strength. And so if you wonder, oh my goodness, man, the way you're describing these groups, <laughs> if I show up, I'm going to ruin it all. Right? If I show up with this, man, this, uh, <laughs> the reality though is that like in order for me to effectively pastor you and effectively pastor the church, I need every single one of you and I need you to bring the goodness that Jesus has put in you to one of our groups. I can equip you, but the Bible says my job is to equip you so that you can do the work of the ministry. I want to train you. I need to teach you. I need to remind you that this is who you are. But then you need to come together in our groups. And what's great is that when you feel like, I got nothing to offer. And you feel like, you know what? All I have is brokenness. The good news is you can bring that brokenness to Jesus. And he'll heal you with the gold of his grace. And he'll fill you with his goodness. So your testimony might be, I'm broken, but Jesus wasn't. And Jesus is healing me. Do you know how many of our groups need somebody in them to say that every single time they get together? All of them. All of them. And you are full of goodness. You are able to instruct one another. You can tell people what you know. Because God will use what you know to build up other people. I read this quote from someone who's doing it. I don't know if you heard this mini-series that's coming out on the Bible, this 10-hour thing that's, I think it's going to be on PBS. I'm not sure. Um, I got connected to somebody who's actually working on this project. I don't know if the movies are going to be quality or not. I don't know if, the, if they're going to be accurate to the Bible or not. But I was reading an article about the, one, the director, and this is what he said. He said, I've had a great fear in this project of doing this. He said, but my fear isn't the failure of the project. My fear is looking back later, having done nothing. He said, I'm not afraid this is going to fail. I'm afraid of not doing this so that later on, I won't have done anything. I'm more afraid of not doing anything than I am of doing something. I want you to have that same fear. I want you to be more afraid of what our church will lack if you don't show up. I want you to be more afraid of what you're going to lack if you don't show up. Man, let's go to the Lord. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to, to, to be with us, to confirm these things. Let's do it together. Pray with me. Lord, Lord God, um, we are so encouraged, inspired by your vision. We want to love people this way. We want to love each other this way. Father, we have this sense of what groups would look like if we're getting together week in and week out and we're caring about each other. We're pressing through our differences and celebrating those. 
We're learning the Bible together. We're learning how to pray together. We're understanding theology and and what you teach. We're even learning how to reach out to the non-Christians around us and show them your love. And we're doing that together. That's what we want for our groups. And we're going to trust these promises that you make. We're going to just commit right now together that we believe that you have put your goodness in us. And that though we're broken, we believe that you are putting the golden grace that flows from the cross back into our lives to heal our places of brokenness. Father, make us this kind of family. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.